0: Hello, Midnight Myth listeners, and welcome to the Midnight Myth Time Machine. We're publishing our back catalog week by week to make it available on your favorite podcast platforms. What you're about to hear is episode 14, Cha Ching, which originally aired in May of 2017. This episode is dated AF, y'all. We're discussing the intersection of art and commerce with special regard to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So hop in the literal time machine and enjoy episode 14. cha
1: Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and NA, member FDSE. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth. And somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones.
0: And my name is Laurel Hostack.
1: Welcome to the Midnight Myth. Yo, know, the FX TV show Legion was fucking amazing.
0: Yeah. You didn't even wait like three seconds into this episode before dropping an F bomb this Cause, time.
1: Cause it's Legion and it was fucking Usually amazing. we like
0: work up to the F
1: bomb. Oh no, I'm starting I'm starting there because that's how amazing that TV show was.
0: That's appropriate. It's really good. You know I haven't finished it yet, right?
1: No worries, I won't spoil there it for you. There will
0: be no Legion spoilers in this episode.
1: <laughs> but um, if you have a cable subscription, if you have access to FX, if you have a Hulu account, access to a Hulu account, log in, and you kind of like nerdy, strange, sci-fi comic book go watch Legion season one and uh, just let it fuck your mind. Yeah. It's so good.
0: Yeah, it's really good.
1: So so it's very kind good. Of,
0: it's kind of the new Twin Peaks before the new Twin Peaks.
1: Yeah, I'll get, I'll hit you guys with the, the the premise so you know how cool it is. It's based off of a comic book. Now, if you don't, what? yeah, if you're not a, if you don't know the comics, uh, you might not realize this because it doesn't in any way, shape, or form feel like the conventional comic book genre.
0: Definitely not.
1: But the main character David is based off of a character in a comic book called Legion. He's in the X-Men sort of sphere and the the comic book character can absorb other people's powers, but he has multiple personality disorder. So as he absorbs their powers, he also absorbs their personality. In the show, he's in a mental hospital, but has incredibly powerful psychic abilities that kind of cross between his madness and uh, it's just, there's not there's no, there's nothing else like it.
0: It's amazing. Um, it's funny that you explain his uh, his powers in the comic books like that because I remember us playing like a a little game between the two of us once where we were like, if you were a mutant, what would your like X Men mutant powers be? And I was like, I'd want to take on the powers of other mutants when I'm in combat with them, and that's very Legion esque, a little yeah. bit roguey too, right?
1: Yeah, she can. She can kind of do that too. She like absorbs their energy and their life force, and then can have their right, powers. Yeah, but she can also fly and has super strength, yeah, which is but cool there's too.
0: Always a catch.
1: Always yeah, there's always a catch. a catch. So why why are we why am I mentioning Legion? Well, Legion got me thinking about the emergence of the new genre that I'm going to call the comic book genre
0: of of film
1: of yeah film and TV.
0: Oh, true. Yeah.
1: It is now, I think, its own genre in the respect that a Western is now a genre. Right. And it really made me think about these sort of big watershed moments for that genre. But more importantly, there's something interesting happening in the intersection of commercialization and art. So what do I mean by that? I mean, the crossroads where you have artists trying to make great art, and then you also have business people trying to make a shit ton of money yeah and the comic book genre kind of represents this this confluence this this crossroads you know more so than anything because the fans are highly engaged and they demand a high quality if you put out a poor comic book quality thing the fans are just going to revolt and hate it think of uh zach snyder's batman v superman
0: right or Zack snyder's anything
1: Sure. Well, in particular, for my argument, this movie. Exactly. Right? It made a ton of money in its opening weekend, and no one went back to see it. Versus Marvel's Guardian of the Galaxy, where everybody saw it, it made a ton of money, and everyone saw it more than once.
0: Yeah, it's a badass movie.
1: Right? So the fans are very demanding, causing the storytellers to really scrutinize their work. But at the same time, there's this tremendous pressure for these to make shit tons of money for the investors and the producers yeah and the economics behind the comic book genre has like fragmented universes where the x-men can't intercede with the avengers who can't intercede with sony oh just care with spider-man but just kidding now spider-man can kind of be with the avengers yeah. but for a limited period of time yeah, these
0: kind of overlapping and complex webs uh, you see what I did there mm-hmm. of contracts and legalese. That's really interesting.
1: So here's the question that I want to explore: To what extent does commercialization affect the art of the story? Woof. And based upon that, I want to do a dive into comics as the genre and and this this moment that we're at right now. Yeah. And where we're going from here. And to see if there's anything that we can gleam or that we can learn, because I have I, I have some arguments to make.
0: Yeah. I um I'm excited about this because I think it's really interesting that you've zeroed in on the comic book genre uh, to illustrate this pattern in, in filmmaking and in storytelling. Um but we know, we know that this is not new, that for generations and generations. The the biggest dollar has influenced what stories get made and and how uh, how Hollywood and television kind of conduct themselves. But I think that you've hit on something really specific when you you look at the way that it works with comic books because you see a reinvention of a a genre from another medium that is kind of taking all of the like these are the these are the points that we have to hit to start hitting our audiences. And are like, let's start pulling from this um, from this existing canon, so that we can utilize that you know that universal touchstone that's already in place to make the most bang for our buck. And where does that intersect with the good story? And right. are we demanding the good story?
1: Yeah. So I'm going to start with um, the the Marvel the marvels because it is both my favorite and both the most wretchedly, terribly, and messed up. So it, it, wow. it embodies that, because I think Marvel, what they've done in movies and TV, is phenomenal. So just to give a little context, how we got to where we are in the economics of the comic book, film, and TV genre. In the 90s, everyone went and read comics. It was amazing. There was a boom. Uh, then a little thing called the internet happened, and people started downloading comics, and it struggled. Sales plummeted, um, so Marvel, the, the company responsible for the Avengers, the X Men, Spider Man, the Fantastic Four, was on the verge of bankruptcy. It was about to close its doors. In come major studios, so Paramount, who makes movies, Fox, who makes movies, and Sony, and they buy off they buy off properties. They buy the rights to these characters to make movies. So anything and everything to do with Spider Man went to Sony. Sony makes the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man movies that are smash hits. Uh, The Fox buys the X-Men and Fantastic Four and any and everything that has to deal with them. And they make X-Men smash hit franchise that's made tons of money for them. And they've also made some Fantastic Four movies, which Mm, have been pretty, pretty rough. And then Paramount makes Iron Man and Iron Man, uh, probably of all the movies, was the most successful not just commercially, but critically.
0: It was a game changer. And and I say this also from a personal standpoint where I was, you know, a young woman growing up who uh, I wasn't really interested in comic books other than the sort of goth, you know, steampunk comics that I was reading as a teenager. Um, but Iron Man kind of bridged the gap between like really engaging storytelling, good social commentary, and like, super nerdy comic bookiness that kind of opened my eyes and opened the door for me to the genre.
1: Right. And you had Robert Downey Jr. just embodying Tony oh, Stark. God,
0: he's so good. He was made
1: to be Iron Man. Absolutely. So, so you have those then now Paramount uh, also then makes an incredible Hulk and the idea that these are going to be linked. Then Disney comes in with its purchasing power And it realizes that Disney has a problem on its hands and I'm going very quickly and doing it very flippantly and glibly, but Disney realizes that the one of its main problems economically is that they don't have enough things for boys. Yeah. They've got the princess market down. Little girls love them. How are they going to attract boys? Well, there's this company that's down and struggling, but has all of these great stories and heroes called Marvel And they buy Marvel and then the sort of universe that Paramount started to build now becomes Marvel Studios on its own and it's run by Disney. And it culminates into what I would consider one of the biggest moments for the comic book genre, which is Josh Whedon's Avengers. Avengers. This was a game changer. This was the entire universe links. This is literally watching a comic book live on TV, yeah. not live, but and, you get me.
0: And to, to go back like one step, the moment we saw that cutscene from the end of Iron Man, where we've got, you know, Nick Fury showing up uh, and we're like, wait a minute. Is this a is this a bigger thing? Is this about to be a bigger thing? And for those of us like me who weren't like at that point, so engrossed in this saga that we were looking forward to, you know, what was in production and, you know, figuring out what the interconnected web of whatever was going to be. I was like, wait. And this was the first seed that was planted of this being a bigger universe. And so that was, you know, kind of that moment that we knew, we knew what we were in for.
1: Yeah. And it had nothing on that scale had ever been done in the comic book genre quite like it. It was so successful uh, on just making a great story. They, They had connected the webs of all of the other movies and they had done a really great job in bringing characters or bringing actors. Pardon me that could really inhabit and embody these characters. And they got the best director to, to go that, that the only person that could have made that movie was Josh Whedon. Yeah. And it was a watershed moment. And this left pretty much the entire industry, in my opinion, standing with their mouths open being like, whoa. Yeah, you know Warner Brothers, who owns DC Comics, who owns Batman, Superman, Justice League, all of those was like we we were doing this all wrong. We have to catch up. We have to make a big extended universe like this. Uh, there's then a reboot of the Fantastic Four. They try to redirect X Men and, and give a younger cast to it. Uh, Spider Man gets rebooted. All of these things happen in the wake of this amazing Avengers movie, and all of them fucking failed and flopped and were just bad. So what does Marvel do at this watershed moment? I would say at this point, it's, they, they break these Marvel movies into phases. So Avengers was the end of phase one. Then we get Guardians of the Galaxy. Then we get another movie like, holy shit, no one saw it coming. I'm a nerd. I've read Marvel comics for years. Right. I had no idea who these characters were. You know, I'm like, what, there's a talking tree? Like, what is this? Is this a comedy? Is this an action movie? They're in space. And James Gunn and his vision for that movie connected it. And you're just like, my God, Marvel can't fail.
0: Yeah, it kind of felt like, you know, they took this leap of faith and that we were, you know, we were confronted with like the next step in filmmaking. Uh, and, And I remember us having conversations with friends of ours being like, they haven't had a flop yet. Nothing has Nothing has gone wrong. Nothing has been like critically panned. Um, the next one has to suck, right? But well, no, no, no. Let's keep this train going.
1: Yeah. Since then, I think we're almost at the end of phase two. We might be in phase three. I can't keep track anymore. Mm-hmm. The Marvel Cinematic Universe has sucked. And I'm going to say it here for the internet. I like all the movies, all they have done is regurgitate the same movie back to us. And I, Guardians of the Galaxy 2 is coming out. I guarantee we're going to see it, and I'm going to enjoy it, and it's going to be the same movie.
0: Well, they have figured out their formula.
1: We are at the intersection of commercialness versus art, and I think the biggest uh, symbol of that was Ant-Man. Ant-Man, they brought in Edgar Wright to direct it. You might know him from Shaun of the Dead, right? A guy that's got a really weird directorial eye, who makes some amazing really movies. Really smart,
0: really tight, really and clever. really clever. Yeah.
1: Who gets fired from his movie? Yeah. You know, so why? And why does he get fired? Well, there's a lot out there. There's a lot of theories. I would submit that what they wanted Ant Man to be was we're redoing Iron Man, and we're making another origin story. The twist on it is that his armor makes him small. The twist on it is that he's a thief. But other than that, they needed to make Iron Man again. And Edgar Wright wasn't going to do that, and he lost his job. At the point that they're at now is that they want to be safe. They don't want to take risks. They realize there's too much money at stake. Now, I'm not in the minds of these filmmakers, and they haven't made, in my opinion, an actual bad movie.
0: Right, yeah.
1: But I already... Nothing's been
0: unforgivable.
1: I already know what the Infinity War, which is coming, I already know what that movie's gonna be. Yeah. The Avengers are fragmented because of the Civil War. They're not gonna know how to come together. In comes Thanos. They're going to have to come together to find a way to beat Thanos. There's gonna be some quibs and some some jabs. It's not gonna be easy. They're gonna bend together and they're gonna do it. And whoever isn't on contract anymore is gonna die. <laughs> right? And we all know that. yeah. Is there anyone that's going to dispute? That's exactly what that movie is going to be. It's going to be the Avengers again, and they're going to make the same Avengers movie. And they've gotten to a point where I would argue, and if you've got a counter argument, I'd like to hear it, but I think it's pretty successfully where the, the financial benefit versus the risk of doing something different has steered them in a conservative direction. Uh, look at Dr. Strange. Iron Man, same movie as Iron Man, the same origin movie.
0: Just not not as good.
1: You know, uh, uh, Thor Ragnarok, the trailer just launched. It looked fun. Yeah. It did look fun. It did look cool. I wonder if it's going to be innovative. I wonder if it's going to be different. I I hope so. It looks like it it could do something very different from the other Thor movies. But then I'd submit this. The other Thor movies weren't as successful. So now they're going to try something new with it. Do you think they're going to do that with their $500 million budget that they're going to sink into Avengers? I don't think so.
0: Probably not.
1: I don't think so. I think, and so here's the point when we step back and judge. Should they throw out the profit motive and just make whatever movie they want, whether it flops or not, at what level is Disney, the world's largest and most successful entertainment company, incumbent to put storytelling ahead of profit to
0: put risk ahead of profit yeah
1: where Um, where is that line
0: yeah i want to i want to attempt to answer this question and i'm not going to come up with a you know be all end all answer to this but i do want to i do want to make a little rewind So if you could do some sound design thing where we just like go back in time,
1: we're
0: We're in the middle ages.
1: Whoa, that was awesome.
0: Unexpected. The medicine here really sucks. Yeah. We kind of got in the way back machine just now. Yeah. Yeah. Everything's dirty and terrible. Mm, And where's the bathroom?
1: Yeah. And uh, I feel like there's a general lack of of knowledge, hope, and optimism about the world right now.
0: Yeah. Um, I'm going to go pray exactly way to wait a segue man that was amazing i was gonna say what's the one thing that's holding you to this mortal coil that's keeping you from just jumping off a cliff it's your faith in god right it's uh-huh. your religion yeah uh your religion is kind of the dominant thing in your life that is you know making it okay that you're a surf or you're you know whatever um so You're in the Middle Ages, and the dominant art that surrounds you, the dominant storytelling around you, is severely influenced by your religion. This is the Dark Ages. You know, we're in Europe. Uh, Christianity is everything.
1: It is. The historians of the Middle Ages would call it the papal monarchy. Exactly. There is an empire, and the emperor is the pope who runs several countries.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So the art that surrounds you, the only art that you know, are, you know, images by Giotto or Duccio of uh, your savior on the cross or riding into Jerusalem. Uh, There's kind of no expression of beauty and aesthetic that is secular at this point. And we flash forward a little bit to the Renaissance, you know, the kind of resurgence of, you know, classical ideals and uh, and the search for beauty and truth, and not much really changes, except the fact that maybe, you know, maybe some of the uh, search for beauty and truth includes images of regular people alongside the savior. So the art that we're seeing is, is highly regulated by, uh, you know, a higher a higher force, and that's either a noble person, a king, or a church. You have an ecclesiastical or noble uh, influencer who is, uh, you know, in charge of commissioning all the art that's out there.
1: Yeah, and just just so everyone knows, you can't make any art in the Middle Ages at all. You will not make any art unless someone, a powerful, landowning, member of the aristocracy, nobility, or the clergy is, is paying you for it.
0: Right. And what we're talking about right now is called patronage. Uh, so if you are an arts patron, you are someone who pays, you know, a painter or a sculptor uh, to, to make something beautiful that either, you know, uh, manifests your faith or your your place in the faith. So in, during the Renaissance, we start to see wealthy families like the Medici's Pop up and start commissioning painters and artists, uh, and we start to see other wealthy families who are commissioning painters to to uh, to paint scenes from the Bible and also include members of that family in the painting as praying next to that scene from the Bible to show just how pious you were. And this was how art got made: was wealthy people or the church were commissioning people to do it. Oh,
1: to be clear, the church were also wealthy people.
0: Exactly. Uh, but I, I mean, just like aristocratic families versus, you know, religious institutions. Sure. Uh, and this is the primary way that any aesthetic uh, influence is making its way into people's minds. Yeah. And this is a, this is a system that survives today. Uh, patronage, which we talk about in art, we talk about in uh, the humanities and the sciences and research and in politics as well, we talk about money in politics that determines what stories get told by politicians. You know, a, a lobby for a special interest might might influence your state representative to go in and and spend most of their time talking about how we need to put coal miners back to work, or how we need to, you know, uh, how we need to stop gun violence. And I, either side of the of the coin, we've got people who are influencing what stories get told based on how much money they can put in somebody's pocket.
1: It's an interesting thought. So decompacting that, few pieces of reconsideration. So in the medieval ages, it's a representation of a culture and a philosophy that says the only duty of any individual is their duty to God. And the only duty uh, that... duty. The only, the only, the only, the only path towards virtue is through the understanding, worship, and reverence of a religion, and the entire society is bent and geared to that. It is the pope that places the crown on the king that gives the king the authority, who then gives the authority to the nobles, mm-hmm. and it is the place of the commoner to serve the will of God. Right, and everything is within this. So within that, there is a philosophy of art that the true aesthetic represents and mirrors the divine. Right. And every piece of art is going to be bent on that. Now, and pragmatically, you have small groups of people deciding what art is going to be, right? Right. You know, and in that way, it's very similar today where there is, there's small groups of people that are deciding what movies get made, for example. But the difference is, is that I think, there is a core philosophical difference uh, that I think would say that it's not the system of patronage, you know, where I'd say it is, it is the system of capitalism. Right. Right. And that that it has some remnants to it in that those with wealth can decide, but their goal, right. So the goal when a priest commissions an artist in the medieval ages is to find an expression of divine beauty that can hopefully last and last longer than themselves it's an expression of their own mortality and their own powerlessness right the purpose of disney is to make profit right right so their motives behind those philosophies end up end up being very different and hence the art that we get is very different it doesn't matter if a bishop makes a piece of artwork it's not for everyone it's it's just for that bishop and the few people that get to grace their halls to look at it. Yeah. Whereas when Disney makes a movie, it wants millions. It wants the whole world. If it can get everyone in the world to see its movie, that's the win. Right. You know, it's for mass production. It's for the masses to consume.
0: Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. My argument is really to say that the that the current system of patronage, which also exists in the nonprofit sector as well, Um, you know, I work for a theater company and a lot of the stuff that we, that we make is dependent on the funding that we get from private and public, uh, philanthropy. Mm -hmm. And so this is still a system that's, that survives in, um, in art making outside of Hollywood. I would argue though, that the current, you know, capitalistic, um, you know, incarnation of the way that, that stories get chosen in Hollywood contains remnants of that, uh, oh, that, sure. that, patronage. Um, I, I agree.
1: Can I ask you about the theater company if you don't yeah, mind? Sure. So, um, cause I truthfully don't know I'm rich and I want to give your theater company money. Mm-hmm. Do I get creative input to what art you make? So
0: this can be, you know, a really complex question. Um, perhaps at my theater company, I would say at my theater company, You as a wealthy donor don't necessarily have a say in what I make. You donate to me because you like what I make and you want me to keep making it. However, if you're a board member, that's a different story. So if we get, and I'm not necessarily saying that this is true of my theater company, but if you're at a big nonprofit theater company and you have wealthy board donors who are part of your, we call it board of directors who are giving the most money who are soliciting people to come see your shows, who are part of, you know, kind of this steering organization that determines and approves everything that comes through your organization. They might be able to say, you're making that show? I don't know how I feel about that.
1: Yeah, don't do... And to get on the board, you just have to give a lot of money.
0: Give a lot of money and be willing to give your time.
1: Right. Interesting.
0: To have, you know, some input on who's hired, on who continues to be employed, on how you're running your organization and budgeting your organization. And in many organizations, I'm sure they have creative input.
1: It's crazy how different we are from medieval Europe and how things have evolved and changed, but it's also amazing how a system can echo from the ancient time to the present. Yeah. Because you're right, that does resemble patronage very much.
0: Yeah, and and I do want to start to draw you know a line from that that history to uh, to the specific example that you're bringing to the table today in the comic book genre and film, um, and I want to move forward a little bit to Victorian England. Okay. So it's getting our way back machine again, and just
1: actually we're going to go forward this time because we're way forward
0: mid- machine. So this is where we see. So Victorian England is the home of Dickens. Uh,
1: Cheerio, mate. Right. Shilling for a shine, governor.
0: I'm the awful dodger.
1: Help our poor boy. Please, sir.
0: May I have some more?
1: I just want a bit of porridge for me, mum.
0: You may be a bit of, a bit of cheese. There's more of gravy than of grave about you.
1: It was a bad idea to come here, love, wasn't it?
0: <laughs> if anybody is still listening, uh,
1: I commend you. Please tweet <laughs> us that you survived our terrible English accents. Actually, yours
0: was pretty good. Uh, mine is better when I, you know, I, I'm not trying to scare people away.
1: Yeah, I'm, um, I, you know, I'm just not an actor. So <laughs> you, ha- you have a little bit of actor in you. I, I don't. So when I do it, it just sounds bad.
0: Uh, um, with Dickens, we see the emergence of the cereal.
1: Like the breakfast cereal?
0: Yeah. Like Cheerios. The- like, Cheerios? It's just where we started. <gasps> That's where that came from. Exactly. What so what I'm really talking about is uh publishing works uh in, in a sequence and not all at once, essentially. So Dickens was kind of the um the genesis of, you know, let me publish one chapter now in this publication and get everybody hooked and then publish the next chapter. And it was often very sensational and often very cliffhangery. Um and it was intent on reaching the masses. And so this was work that was critically panned for a while that, you know, you, you could create these sort of uh, pieces of art in installments to, to hook and engage and create obsessions from the masses.
1: Mm, um, interesting point.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: Very interesting point.
0: And this, I think, is a tradition that evolved for certain into the comic book.
1: Absolutely. Uh, and
0: so it was, it was a profit-driven piece uh it was a profit-driven method of creating art and there's no one today i mean i'm sure there are some people today who don't like dickens but there's no one today who will say that a christmas carol and hard times and you know a tale of two cities are not art but in the time that it was made it was it was definitely belittled for its its focus on reaching lower classes on you know capitalizing on the fact that there was a higher literacy rate than before and, you know, engaging people who were not as intellectually, um, you know, elevated as the higher classes. And it, it really did, you know, it was motivated by profits.
1: A lot there to deep um, Wow. A lot there to deep act. in, cause you know, starting the question of to what degree does commercialization affect art? when money is deciding what stories do or do not get told, it's not all bad, right? Like, right. like so I, I think you hit the nail on the head. Like you speak, like Dickens comes out, part of what the problem was, was that it sounds like you were making a class argument. There was a different class of people that the writers typically weren't writing for, that he was now writing for. Yeah. So that's snubbing the nose at an establishment. That's instantly that establishment is going to revolt. Anytime there's ever a, a movement that says, I'm going to change the guard from the old to the new, the old always will pan it, and and, and that's true of anything. So there's that aspect to it, Then the aspect of that Dickens was trying to make money. And, you know, I do believe that story writers and storytellers have the right to make a living.
0: Yeah, they should deserve be, to be paid for what they do.
1: Sure, they shouldn't have yeah. to be in poverty, nor should they be, uh, you know, subservient to the will of someone's idea of what divine art is, as it was in the Middle Ages, but now subservient purely to the capitalist interest. You know, when we get to the point where, because you know, I mentioned Legion. Right. Legion changed the paradigm. Legion said, there's this, there's what we think of, of a, of a show that is a superhero themed and driven show. And then there's Legion that says it's going to be completely different. It's going to tackle things like madness. It's going to tackle things like the pressures of society on young people and, and, and how that, that, that can splinter a consciousness symbolically, whether you have powers or not, it's going to make me as an audience member feel uncomfortable and re-engage in new levels. Right. And it completely puts to pale any other superhero show because it says, I'm going to change the paradigm. Now me as an audience member, seeing that, I realized you just shoot me out of my apathy because I was just giving the money every time Marvel came out with something. Uh, Oh, okay. I'm going to go see it because that's what I do now. Realizing like, no, wait a minute. I want great stories in this. Yeah. It means nothing to me. Yes. If And now having seen Iron Man, which, you know, the two watershed moments for Marvel's, you know, cinematic extended universe were the first Iron Man and the Avengers. Everything else has paled in comparison. Everything else. And that's a lot of other movies. And I own every one of them and have seen them all multiple times.
0: Right. Um, uh, so I, I'm really glad that you said these things and what I wanted to, what I wanted to do, what, what the next point that I want to make with regard to the serial and with regard to how Dickens becomes, you know, X-Men, uh, is, so we have this pattern of comic books that, um, that capitalize on the serial, that are like, we can continue to have young people engaged because we are continuously going to put out new volumes of these characters that we have already gotten them interested in. So we can continue this, you know, ad infinitum. This can go on forever. And I think when um, when Hollywood really grasped that there was a generation of people who were so steeped in this mythology that they could start realizing those and making billions of dollars... Um, they made Iron Man. Iron Man not only, you know, was was a well-made and well-written story, but it also, like many really influential comic books, hit on really, um, you know, it got lightning in a bottle. It hit on themes that were affecting us in, our, in that moment in history. You know, this was, what year was that? Like 2007?
1: Yes, uh, early 2000s. So we're still uh, like mid-2000s. you know
0: post 9/11 we've got those fears in us we have you know the Iraq war is is still you know plaguing a lot of us and so we've the got quagmire these, of our time yeah, yeah these questions about um about violence and these questions about our role in the world and globalization and so Iron Man does all of these things and then blows the universe into this giant um you know, I'll say it again, this web. And it's like, hey, we got them. So we're going to create this web of interconnected stories. And we're going to rebuild this mythology in a way that they can see it. And so it keeps making these movies. It keeps making this money. It knows it has people invested in the serial and that people have to see each movie to be able to catch up and understand. And then at a certain point, it thinks it's gotten us so ensnared in this web that it thinks the structure can hold on to it. It thinks the structure is enough to carry us. Whereas what really gripped us about Iron Man and what really gripped us about, you know, Avengers were the incredibly new ways of telling old stories. Yeah, it was the story.
1: It was the actors. It was the plot. It was the dialogue. It was the edge of your seat, really caring whether these, these characters live or die.
0: And what's happening now with Legion and with Logan, which is another thing we haven't mentioned yet, but is a huge part of this, you know, taking the comic book characters, especially from X-Men, which is one of the most socially conscious you know, series out there, and infusing it with the, the stories that are affecting us most potently. And the characters that we're going to empathize with the most. Yeah. And so it understands that not only is it about just snaring us in that structure, but giving us and feeding us with that, that beautiful story.
1: Yeah, because here is the, the problem. You walk away from Doctor Strange thinking, I can't wait to see what he does with the other Avengers. Right. Not walked away. Not, you don't walk away from that movie thinking, man, that was amazing.
0: And yeah, and this is a thing that, that you and I have talked about a lot with regard to not only Marvel, but especially DC and the DC movies right now. It's that every movie that comes out is your stepping stone to the next thing. And you hear a lot of people making excuses for Batman versus Superman or making excuses for what the Justice League will be as, you know, it's, it's just uh, Batman versus Superman is just setting up the Justice League and the Justice League is just going to be setting up
1: Justice League too. the next thing. But
0: at what point is the thing, the thing at what point is it the story? Because I can't think of anything more important and big and exciting for me than Batman versus Superman. How is not, how is that not the thing that everything is building towards? You know, why is that a stepping stone? Why isn't it the thing?
1: So here's what, what I kind of want to say in summary, because I agree if, the one thing that we have, the one power that we have as fans that they didn't have in the Middle Ages, who we choose to see and when we choose to see it matters. And it's come time for us to stop going to Marvel movies mindlessly. It's It's come time for Marvel to flop. And I say that not because I want Marvel to flop, but I want them to see that, no, I'm not a mindless automaton you can't just get my money with every movie. You have to earn me as a fan.
0: And we have to demand more.
1: And I think we're at this moment where our biggest power is to not go. And that's going to be hard for for me personally, because I love seeing a Marvel movie the day it comes out. Like, I love it. I get yeah. all giddy and excited. Yeah, it's and great. I, I want to see these movies. And this is such a great moment because it's finally cool to be a fucking comic book nerd. It's never been. I've been one my whole life. It's never been cool until right now. Yeah. And I want this to keep going. But if they're going to regurgitate the same story back again and again without development, without innovation, without characters that I really care about, um, it's not going to work. Now, how did Logan get made? Sorry, this is an important point. Yeah. Because Fox was not winning. They own the X-Men. They have been kind of trumpet along where maybe one out of every five X-Men movies is actually a good movie. Right. It makes them money, but there's an opportunity cost when you make a movie and you spend $100 million and it makes $200 million, but it had the opportunity to make a billion dollars. Right. So there's an opportunity cost when you don't actually deliver the goods, even if you make profit. Now, if you're a business person, you intuitively understand, man, we made this much, but we really could have made this much. And in the losses that they'd seen around movies like X-Men Apocalypse that weren't too good, the other Wolverine movies that made them money, yes, but they didn't have the juggernaut presence. There is this sense that, with Logan, that they just wanted to tell a Wolverine story. Right. Start, middle, and end. A simple, basic story about a character that we love at the end of his life, you know, and at the end of his run as a superhero. What would this character look like after years and years of war and combat and watching so many of his friends die along him by his side? Who would that person be? And in that they made this beautiful, unique, no comic book movie has ever remotely been like it because it happens, it happens to be that it's about a comic book character. Right. And when you see that you think, man, there is a new, we're at a new watershed moment. There's a new bar here. You can't just keep giving me the same thing because when people are doing it well they're putting the the same old comic book genre to shame.
0: Right. And, and Logan, I think, opened a door to say this can be done and this can. You know, a, a comic book movie can be both incredibly successful at the box office and ridiculously critically acclaimed like it was yeah. what 98 on rotten tomatoes or something yeah, that's yeah. based on critics and and, fans. and users yeah you know when something can get both accolades and you know incredible amounts of you know profit that's that's an example to the rest of hollywood saying hey we're allowed to innovate this form
1: and you know what like frustrates me as a fan i think The moment that really kicked off the modern, and by modern, I'll say recent, you know, the past 20 years, really kicked off the comic book genre and really made a statement that comic book movies could be high art and commercially successful was The Dark Knight. Right. Where you have an Oscar winning performance from Heath Ledger as The Joker. We started there, you know, and- I would argue the reason it's difficult to stay there, to stay at Dark Nights and Logan's and Avengers and these like just truly revolutionizing movies is because they have to make money. And the only way we can hold studios accountable to quality to when the movie is just the same old movie and it's gonna hurt. I don't know if I'm gonna do this because I just don't know if I can, but it's (laughs) to stay home. Yeah. And sometimes where commercialism and art intersect, when we ask ourselves, what do we want? And if we want good stories, there's only one way we can demand it, and that's by not giving money to the bad ones.
0: It's like the opposite of voting. Just stay home.
1: Just stay home. Right. And I would submit that is how we, as fans, can hopefully Oh, no, we're not going to make, you can't stop bad movies from being made. Right. Right. You, you can't stop mediocre movies from being made. You can't
0: stop Suicide Squad. It's just, you have to let that train wreck happen.
1: You know, but at the same time, we deserve more than Ant-Man. Edgar Wright should be able to break the paradigm.
0: And you should be able to, you know, uh, tell a unique story without having to be completely bound by brand awareness. Yeah. Or brand safety. Yeah. I get why that's important, but at some point you have to allow a unique perspective. Sure. I'd like to. Uh, do you have another thing to say?
1: I was going to suggest the game, unless you got a boomerang.
0: Well, I have a boomerang. Ooh, let's do it. Um, and this is tied into everything that we talked about. I want to. I want to continue on this, you know, question of commerce and art and where they intersect in Hollywood. Um, and I want to zoom out from the comic book uh, genre for just a moment here, and I'm gonna I'm gonna share with you the some of the top films, the top grossing films of the 2010s, the decade that we are currently living in.
1: Okay, so so from 2010 till today, the movies right. that made the most money.
0: Yeah, number one is Star Wars Episode Seven, The Force Awakens. That's a sequel. Jurassic World, a sequel. Marvel's The Avengers, a sequel and an adaptation; Rogue One, a sequel; Finding Dory, a sequel; Avengers: Age of Ultron, a sequel; The Dark Knight Rises, a sequel and an adaptation; Beauty and the Beast, an adaptation, and it goes on from here. It's sequels and adaptations. Uh, the only the two original stories on this list are The Secret Life of Pets and Inside Out. They're kids' movies kids animation that hurts right that the top grossing films of the decade that we're currently in are all sequels or adaptations there's not a single new story on that within the top 10 you know you don't get to those either original stories until number 16 um
1: uh, what's the phrase houston we have a problem
0: yeah and and if you go to a movie these days that's not in an art house all the trailers that you're going to see, you can tell what they are. The second the the screen, you know, fades up because you see Vin Diesel and it's, you know, another fast and furious movie or whatever. Uh, There's, there's no original stories. Uh, And, you know, it's a reflection of Hollywood being safe and saying, we know that this is going to get the people who saw the last one and that it did really well at the box office last time. So, Let's make another Pirates of the Caribbean movie. That's on the list as well, Dead Man's Chest. Um, Let's make a fifth movie that nobody wants, but they'll come and see. Um, And I'm going to throw out there the one original story that we saw this year in 2017, which is Get Out. We saw an original story by someone that we know, but that completely reinvents a genre that isn't, isn't based on anything that is... Good story, social commentary, uh, and pulls on you know uh, the tropes of a genre that we're already familiar with, which is horror, and is one of the best films we've seen all year, and another you know like ninety nine percent on Rotten Tomatoes. So not only was it made for like what three million dollars, but made a hundred million dollars in its first weekend, and those are the things that give me hope that those kind of stories can deliver on their dollar which is more than just, you know, getting accolades. Because Moonlight, you know, is another thing. Like Moonlight, the greatest, you know, movie of the last year, Best Picture, got those accolades, but it wasn't, you know, run into the bank with hundreds of millions of dollars. But we're we're seeing a glimmer. You know, we're seeing a glimmer with Logan. We're seeing a bigger glimmer, I think, with Get Out, telling a completely original story. And I'll tell you one more thing before we go to the game and that's um, to bring it back to patronage. Uh, Jordan Peele, who made Get Out, um, recently put out a call to young black filmmakers and saying, I I want your scripts. I recognize that I have a place, I have a position of some kind of status in this community in Hollywood, and I'm going to patronize your stories. And because I know that this can work. I'm going to give your stories money and I'm going to get you made. I'm going to get your stories told. And I think we need more of that. Boom.
1: Well done. Well done. Um, Yeah, it's, um, it's amazing that the best... Most talented uh, people that in creative, they they usually end up in TV and film. Yeah, that's the idea, and um, only the very best can get there. And they're going to do the very best in so many ways. That is true, but when it comes to what will actually be made, it has to be safe. It with everyone they have to know it'll sell. You know, I think if Pulp Fiction were to come out today, which was a smash hit. Um, not ever going to be the top box off charts, but a commercial successfully film plus critically successful, it would flop financially. No one would go see it, you know, just because there's not enough Avengers in it.
0: Yeah. But what I, what I glean from, from that anecdote is that if we have more people in positions of power and influence in the industry We're going to see people take risks on each other's behalf in order to get the most important stories told. And that's what I I want.
1: I hope, but with wealth comes the idea of I need to conserve it, which is where conservatism comes from. I now have this wealth and I don't really want to risk it because, you know, it's pretty nice having all this money. And I think that impulse is always going to be there and it's inherent in our culture. It's inherent in our, in our economic system. So, you know, I hope that as Jordan Peele reaps the benefits of his amazing storytelling and is uh, personally successful, financially successful, I hope that he is still willing to take risks because I can think of dozens of filmmakers off of the top of my head. Dozens might be a lot, but I can think of filmmakers that once they got to that level, they stopped taking risks. The biggest example is George Lucas. Yeah. You know, and no one can can sell me that George Lucas isn't brilliant and a genius and great at telling stories. He was just much better at making money. And that became more important to him. Yeah. And and that's OK, too. Like, I don't want to demonize someone that chooses to be profitable. If you're in a business, it should be profitable. But at what level do we as fans or we incumbent because right now we're complicit. Oh, give me the same mindless garbage and I will give you my $20 IMAX 3D ticket. And as yeah. long as as long as long you are as advertised, I will go out on Twitter and Fandango and Rotten Tomatoes and I will call your thing a success. Thank you for not surprising me. You know, I was debating a good friend of mine who just loves the Fast and Furious franchise and I don't want to shit on it. It brings people joy. That's great. But he's just like, you know, it is what it is, and it knows what it is, and it delivers what it is. (laughs) Right. You know, he's telling me that, and to a certain extent, okay, it's that's that's cool. You know what you're getting. So when you buy it, it's safe. But it's also safe. And a story sometimes shouldn't be safe. Sometimes it should be dangerous and and provocative. And we are way too safe right now. And there'll always be those franchises that'll be safe. That's okay. You'll always be able to get that as a film uh, as a film fan. But right now, what we really need is we need more Moonlights, Get Outs, Logans, Legions. We need more things that are like, you know what? We're going to turn this up on its head. We're going to take a risk. And we're going to do something different that no one's done before. And game?
0: Yeah, I just want to say- Go for uh, it. I think the real boomerang here was that I tried to end on an optimistic note and you didn't. Isn't that amazing? Well, but for those is, listening, Derek is the glass half full of us and uh, there
1: there there is hope, but you know, for me with this episode with whatever platform I have, I want to get on record with you guys that we do need to stay home more. Yeah. We do need to stop, you know, When Marvel makes a C minus film, it needs to make C minus money, but it doesn't. It's making a plus money. Yeah. That's the problem.
0: Let's play a game.
1: Let's play a motherfucking game.
0: All right. So we've got a, we've got a game this week that actually deals with patronage, uh, and, and arts and commerce. Um, But if you don't know the drill, this is what we do every week on the Midnight Myth podcast. We play a game where we have some fun and some exciting hijinks with the characters and situations we've been talking about all episode. Uh, And we would love for you to play along at home. Uh, You can find us on social media at The Midnight Myth on Twitter uh, or on Facebook. Search The Midnight Myth podcast or feel free to drop us a line on the website. We would love to hear from you and we'd love your responses on this. So the game this week is, okay, so you're wealthier than you are now. You have enough money to commission pretty much any director, any film director, live or dead, uh, to make the story of your life. What director do you choose and why, based on what kind of movie it would turn out to be? You want to go first?
1: Sure, I know exactly who I'm going to pick. Go for it. I'm going to pick my favorite director, Stanley Kubrick.
0: I kind of knew you were going to say that.
1: 100%. In case you don't know who Stanley Kubrick is, let me give you a little IMDb film biography. A Clockwork Orange, 2001 A Space Odyssey, Barry Lyndon, Eyes Wide Shut, Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Carrying and Love the Bomb. Stanley Kubrick is the master of visual mania done in a logical way. He is the master of integrating music Uh, and in telling symbolism, he did the shining. Um, he is, he is able to capture both the mundane and the bizarre in a way that when you walk away, you feel changed. And if I want anyone to tell the story of my life, I want it through that maddening, crazy lens that Stanley Kubrick sees the world because no filmmaker has ever made movies that I've, I've enjoyed more on a, on an intellectual level on a critical level, something that that his movies hit a part of my brain and make it come to life that no other director has ever been able to do before or since, he would 100% be my go-to. Sadly, the man is, you know, not alive anymore. Right. But I'm rich enough that I can clone him. Yeah,
0: you would resurrect him and then he would make the movie of your life. It It was just Easter. So Sitting at a typewriter, like all work and no play, makes Derek a dull boy. Absolutely. And
1: another thing that Stanley Kubrick did as a director that I think is great is that he's genreless.
0: That's true. He's not bound by genre.
1: He did whatever the fuck he wanted to do. He'll do horror. He'll do sci-fi. He'll do drama. He'll do action. Like, he'll do whatever he wants to do.
0: And yet his style is still very distinct.
1: You know you're watching a Kubrick movie. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Like, his style, it, like, you can feel his decisions. You know, I don't know if that makes any sense. but
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely.
1: So he's who I would pick. Um, and I think he would make my life so much more interesting than it actually is.
0: Nice. That's a really, really good answer.
1: Yeah. All right. Uh, my turn. Yep.
0: All right. So, uh, I wasn't going to pick this person because he's my favorite director and I didn't want to choose my favorite director, but here I go. I'm picking my favorite director. Um, the story of my life would be, uh, would be directed by Jean Cocteau, um,
1: I have no idea who that is.
0: Not familiar. <clears throat> yeah, he's a French director, um, in like fifties oh, oh, oh. and so. Um, and he his work croissants. is sorry. His work is part of an evolving surrealist movement. Um, and he was he was a kind of a jack of all trades in terms of media. Um, he's best known as a film director, but he was also a visual artist and a poet and a performance artist and a playwright. Um, and his work kind of uh you you can see in his work that he's he's very style driven he is very um he definitely leapfrogs between different media in a in a way that's very seamless for him um can examples of his work are yeah. going to be uh the original beauty and the beast la belle et la bête um which is one of the most beautiful films ever made and it's a it's a dream it's a dream uh there are instances of magic that are portrayed by um you know a camera being run backwards. Um, He was very into practical magic, if you will. Um, His, his greatest films also were um, Orpheus, the Testament of Orpheus and the blood of a poet, his Orphic trilogy. And as you know, Orpheus is my favorite story. Um, I
1: I do know that. I I think now everyone that follows the midnight myth knows that too. And
0: often his work dealt with the, um, the burden of being the artist and having to tell the story and the um the difficulty of telling you know the most important stories and the stories of yourself um and yeah it, it's populated by instances of magic walking through mirrors and you know gliding through hallways where these poetic um you know curtains are billowing and i think when i look back on the most important moments of my life i would love to look through them through the lens of poetry and dream and surrealism and magic and beauty.
1: Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. I, I kind of wish I've seen a, a movie. I know you call them films. I usually say movies. Yeah. You know,
0: a, a talkie.
1: I don't know what that is either. It's a
0: talkie. Like when they started having sound, like before when they were silent pictures, they were movies and then they that went right over my head. Talkies. I'm so sorry. Yeah, I call them talkies. No. You know, you see it singing in the rain. Right on. It's well, a historical um,
1: movie. Well, guys, uh, hit us up on Twitter, Facebook, whatever, wherever. Follow us. Talk about us. Tell your friends. Tell your enemies. Tell your neighbors. Tell strangers. Tell your strangers. Just and
0: uh, one last thing: please write your representatives and let them know that you want to hashtag save the arts uh, because a lot of the arts are you know under threat of being cut under the new administration's budget cuts. So definitely let them know that we need the National Endowment for the Arts. We need the Institute of Library Sciences and Library and Museum Sciences. We need the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. And we need the uh, National Endowment for the
1: Humanities. Word. Art matters. Save the arts. Until next time, guys, be kind. Be kind and take risks.